One of my messages for years in healthcare is learn how to say thank you. Learn how to look what's right. Because I think in healthcare, Tony, we filter out the positives. You take the patient home that it didn't work. You take the employee home you weren't effective with. And you miss all the positive things that have been done. And so, you know, we're a big believer that you start off meetings with wins. You end the day with what are you here to be grateful for? Because I think healthcare or any leadership is a great, great position. But I just think we just get wore down because we play defense instead of offense because we find out what's wrong instead of focusing on what's right. Welcome to Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Way. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, this is the podcast for you. Well, I am honored today that the Orsini Way has partnered with the Finley Project to bring you this episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. The Finley Project is a nonprofit organization committed to providing care for mothers who have experienced the unimaginable, the loss of an infant. It was created by their founder, Noel Moore, whose sweet daughter Finley died in 2013. It was at that time that Noel realized that there was a large gap between leaving the hospital without your baby and the time when you get home that led her to start the Finley Project. The Finley Project is the nation's only seven-part holistic program that helps mothers after infant loss by supporting them physically and emotionally. They provide such things as mental health counseling, funeral arrangement support, grocery gift cards, professional house cleaning, professional massage therapy, and support group placement. The Finley Project has helped hundreds of women across the country, and I can tell you that I have seen personally how the Finley Project has literally saved the lives of mothers who lost their infant. If you are interested in learning more or referring a family or donating to this amazing cause, please go to thefinleyproject.org. The Finley Project believes that no family should walk out of a hospital without support. Well, welcome to another episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. This is Dr. Anthony Orsini, and I will be your host again this week. Well, okay, everyone, each and every week, I promise you that by the end of the episode, you'll feel inspired and you will have learned valuable communication skills that will help you be more successful in your professional and your private life. Well, get ready, because this week, I have the incredible fortune and honor to interview one of the biggest experts in the fields of leadership, in healthcare, and in business. His name is frankly considered synonymous with patient experience, and you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone in healthcare that doesn't know his name. So you tuned into this podcast to be inspired and to learn. Well, there is so much of both in this man that I can literally do 10 weeks of interviews and you'll still be learning something new every day. Today, I have the honor and the pleasure to introduce to you Quint Studer. Quint is a businessman, a visionary, an entrepreneur, and a natural mentor to many. He has worked with individuals at all levels of leadership and across a variety of industries to help them become better leaders and create high-performing organizations. 
As you will quickly realize during this interview, Quinn has a gift for translating complex leadership and business strategies into simple behaviors that allow organizations to achieve long-term success and profitability. He's a teacher at heart. In fact, he began his leadership journey working with special needs children, and we're going to talk to him about that today. He entered the healthcare industry in 1984 as a community relations representative. He then went on to hold leadership positions at Mercy Health System in Wisconsin and Holy Cross Hospital in Chicago, Illinois, where their initiatives in patient care led to their winning hospitals magazine's greatest comeback award. In 1996, he became president of Baptist Hospital in Pensacola, Florida, and led that organization to the top 1% of hospitals nationwide in patient and employee satisfaction. That's quite a feat. In 2000, Quint formed the Studer Group to help hospitals achieve the same results as he brought to Baptist Hospital. He frankly put patient experience on the map by connecting patient care and customer service. Through his work at Studer Group, he served as a role model for hundreds of CEOs and other administrative leaders around the country. Studer Group became the go-to patient experience and hospital leadership consultants. And during that time, he was honored to receive several accolades for his leadership. Quint has authored nine books, in addition to the Busy Leaders Handbook, which reached number five on Wall Street Journal's best-selling list. We're going to talk about that a lot today. His book, Results That Last, also made the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. In the Great Employee Handbook, he shares insights from working with thousands of employees during his career. Now, let me tell you, every time I read one of his books, the first thing that comes to mind is a list of friends and families that I want to purchase it for a present. So if you want to be successful, these are books that are really on the mandatory reading list. Quinn has spoken to a variety of audiences across the United States and is nationally recognized expert regarding leadership. He is often interviewed by radio and TV shows, as well as magazines and newspapers across the country. And I'm deeply humbled that he's agreed to do this podcast. He and his wife are residents of Pensacola, Florida. They're passionate about giving back to the community, and they share their time and resources with local and national nonprofit organizations. Well, thank you, Quint. This is quite an honor, and that's quite a lengthy introduction. How are you today? I could have done the same thing, and I want to thank you. You know, I've got your book. I keep it on my desk. It's all in the delivery. And I just will tell you real quick, I love page 70, Tell Me I Forget show me I remember, and involve me, I understand. I also like your comparison with your spikes in your program. And you hit the toughest issue in healthcare and leadership is that these difficult conversations. So thank you for what you're doing to make healthcare better. Thank you so much. Coming from you, that means a lot. And I've been really forging forward with my passion to teach communication. We'll talk about that in a little bit. You know, first, I think it's probably a good idea, if you don't mind, just to Tell the audience, I kind of start this way all the time. Who is Quint Studer and how'd you get here? I got here with a winding road and I think <laughs> I volunteer my time a lot in particularly in university settings, teaching healthcare administration, sort of uh, if you have an hour, you want to have somebody speak to your class. And I get this question quite a bit. And these are students at great universities, you know, got their bachelor's, their master's. Mine was an interesting journey. My parents didn't go to college. I was lucky enough to go to college. I didn't know what to major in. So my first two years, Tony, was like what they call undecided major. Mm-hmm. And then 60 hours, they call you in and they say, you've got to pick a major or courses you're taking might not count toward graduation. And 
I had like a four-year deal. I, I didn't have a four and a half or a five. I had to get out in four. Mm-hmm. And so I thought of people that had a huge impact on my life. And one of them was my high school soccer coach. And in study hall, he let me come into his classroom and work with his students, which were special education teacher. That's what he was. So I became a special ed teacher. And it was one of the great gifts I've ever had. Because I think what I've really done is taking what I've learned there into all my jobs. There's, you know, I've just been working the same game plan in different fields, which is you diagnose, you start off with an assessment. You're a physician. Mm-hmm. I think the challenge in leadership sometimes is we don't slow down to do an assessment. We read a good book or hear a consultant and we rush into a treatment plan without doing an assessment. Then you set a lofty goal. Then you get everyone on the same page and then you take and you break it down into steps, just like you are. You know, I meet Tony, so many doctors that they call me and they say, Quint, you know, I'm now in administration. What should I do? I said, use the same skill set you used as a physician, but instead of a patient, you now have an organization. Frank Byrne was probably the first physician that when he was at Parkview, ended up in um, Madison, Wisconsin, that I had this conversation with. So I did that. Then I ended up working in a behavioral medicine center, which I loved. It was 35 beds. Ended up working then in hospitals. You know, I got assigned patient satisfaction. I mean, I just happened to be the guy that drew the short straw that day at an administrative (laughs) meeting. Our CEO, Mark Clement, was going to divide us all up. We were sort of a new administration team. And he gave our chief nurse officer quality, clinical quality at the time. He gave our human resource person employee engagement, employee turnover. He gave our CFO finance. And there was this thing called patient sat, which was the fourth little thing. Seeing they all had something, he turned to me and said, you're in charge of patient satisfaction. And I did the same thing I've done everywhere. I did diagnosis. I was, I think, the first hospital administrator that ever went to Prescani and sat on site to understand the tool and how it worked. And then I came back and started benchmarking places like Southwest Airlines and other places and, and how you do it. And then I came back and I was desperate enough that I actually started doing some of these things. And then they sort of worked. And then, Tony, what happened to me is I got discouraged in healthcare and I wasn't enjoying it like I used to because I got into it. I liked it. But then, you know, all we talked about at meetings were FTEs and adjusted occupied beds and market share. And should we take risk or not take risk? Should we be capitated or not be capitated? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like special ed or any of those things. And and I got lost, Tony, and I didn't even know I got lost. I just know it wasn't fun anymore. And I don't mean mm-hmm. fun, just wasn't feeling worthwhile. And then I'm doing this patient sat stuff, which meant I had to go up on the units and ask nurses what we should be doing. And all of a sudden, after about six, seven months of it, I started getting letters that people would write to the hospital about their care started funneling to me because I'm now the patient sat guy. And some of them were complaints, but one day I get this letter that just talked about their father dying in the hospital and how this nurse held his father's hand until he could get there. And he said, I hope you appreciate that nurse. And because I'd been going up on units, because I'd been doing behavior that was different than I had been, I rediscovered purpose worthwhile work and making a difference. And that's what changed my career. A patient experience changed my career because a nurse made a huge impact like they do every single day. 
It's a great story. And as you were speaking, I'm thinking about the real issues that we have today with physician burnout, with employee engagement in the healthcare system, and what you said you were going through about thinking more about FTEs than about the patient. I think today uh, it's worse than ever where doctors and physicians are often forgetting why they went into medicine in the first place. And when I do my workshops about patient experience and communication, I do a little thing and it's in my book about physician burnout. And we've been told for a hundred years, physicians, that the best thing to do not to get burned out is to just treat it like a business and not make those human connections. But it goes back to 1912, believe it or not, when Dr. Osler gave a speech to physicians who were graduating John Hopkins and said, you can only be a good physician if you detach yourself. And so it's exactly the opposite because I think exactly what you said, once you started talking about the patient and you heard that story about the nurse who held the patient's hand, you got excited again. And I think that's what I'm trying to get doctors to get excited about again. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I think sometimes we hear things and because we hear it from people we might respect with all good intentions, we think it's accurate. And maybe it was at one time, or maybe it wasn't. So here's a couple myths that I had to stop listening to. Mm-hmm. One of the myths was you balance your positives and negatives. So if I compliment you, I also criticize you. I'm a one-on-one guy. Well, then I found out I was completely wrong. One-on-one creates negative relationships. A two-to-one creates neutral, two positive to one criticism, three positive to one criticism creates positive relationships. So let's go back to healthcare. We are trained, you as a physician, other people are trained to notice what's wrong. When I come to you, it's not for a well-person checkup, probably. In fact, I will tell you, and I like this about physicians, when I would go to my one of my doctors, I'd walk in and the first thing they'd say is what seems to be the problem or what's wrong. And and I'm glad they did that because that is why I am there. However, we have to be careful in our culture because in our culture, it's a little bit different. So I find that many of the things that I tried to create were things to play offense to find out what's right. So when you look at a doctor, particularly A doctor is used to hearing from anyone in healthcare. What pharmacy doesn't call them with a compliment. Mm -hmm. You know, the OR doesn't call them to say, good news, doctor, we're running on time. Can't wait to hear here because that patient's going to be ready for you. We normally only talk to physicians when we have something negative to say to them. And then we wonder why they get wore out. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I tell people when you see a physician come down the hallway, if you say to them, can I talk to your doctor? They're already coming up with an exit strategy to avoid that conversation because it's not going to be positive. And some of my greatest memories is when you start recognizing physicians in a positive way and watch them flourish. So I think healthcare has been built on a culture of what's wrong. And I get that. We have to find out what's wrong, but we've missed what's right. In my book, Healing Physician Burnout, I think I was ahead of the game. I got a phone call from Dr. George Ford in San Antonio. He said, Quint, you got to deal with burnout. He sent me 72 pages of research. I wrote a book on it, but I think I was just not at the right time. But I've moved from there. And and I'll go on a little bit here because I think this is so vital. Diana Hendel wrote a book recently that's going to be coming out. In fact, I wrote the foreword. And she's a CEO that decided that she ended up being in post-traumatic stress syndrome from her role as a CEO of a hospital. Wow. 
And reading that book, I came up with a new awakening that, you know, Tony, we all know the pain scale. If I come to you and I say, you're a patient, and I say, on a one through 10 with the smiley face and the sad face, what are you? You're going to say a six or a four. I'm not going to say to you, well, you shouldn't be a six. You should be an eight, but you have a great pain threshold. Or I don't say, well, you should be a two, you big wimp. I just acknowledge that you're a six because you feel like you're a six. Well, I think when you look at healthcare today, we're so focused on stress and resiliency, we might be misdiagnosing the organization. Because when I look at what's happening, we might actually be on the verge or in trauma. And I think if we don't treat it right, you know, if you treat stress, and this is new stuff, so I've never talked about this before on the air because it's just all new learnings for me. Fantastic. I got an exclusive. So what happens is I was all about, I actually create, helped create a stress toolkit. So that's where I was two months ago. And of course, resiliency. So if I treat you for stress and tell you meditate, eat right, exercise, it's going to be healthy for you. But if you have trauma, it's not enough. So if you look at the stress, I'm creating a pain threshold for organizations. And so I, I think, you know, if you want to be a leader, you always got to be looking around corners. You got to be figuring out what's coming. And I think right now where healthcare's at, you mentioned it, you mentioned burnout, doctor suicide. It's because I think we're treating it as stress when really we're treating trauma. And let me quickly just give a quick thumbnail definition. Mm -hmm. Stress is usually something that, you know, I'm stressful, but I'm going to go back to normal when it's done. You know, you're applying for medical school. There's a lot of stress. But once you get accepted, the stress changes. You have a talk, stress changes. So there's stress we all go through. But normally when we go through the situational stress, it gets better or we go back to normal. Now, the challenge is with trauma, it's a little bit different. With trauma, it can be one incidence or it can be multiple. But if you look at trauma, we know we're not going to go back to the way it was. We feel powerless. We feel hopeless. And we're losing trust for what's going on in the situation. And our job is changing and our role is changing. So now think of COVID-19. You're a physician. Mm -hmm. Your role is differently because now you're a telehealth physician. You're using Mm -hmm. different technology than you've ever used before. You're still adjusting to electronic health record. They're changing your RVUs. They're changing the payment methodology. You might even be asked right now to take a reduction in pay because COVID has hit the revenue streams and you're losing trust and you're feeling a little powerless and hopeless. So one of my hopes in 2021 is to really start helping people call it what it is. I'm not saying it's trauma. It could be stress, but at least we've got to help the organization diagnose themselves correctly. So I'm probably not the, maybe the topic we all planned on, but I think you're onto something when you mention burnout and what's happening in this year. So I'm very pleased that Diana Hendel, who's much smarter in this than me, asked me to write the forward to her book on this because I walked out of there saying, there's a new light bulb that just came on. It's sort of like inpatient experience. I had to move it from service excellence to if we do the right things, we improve the clinical outcomes. Because when we start getting people to do difficult behavior or uncomfortable behavior, when we connect it to the clinical outcomes with their values, your book's a perfect example. I gave a talk two days ago on 
when we hit these crossroads, do we pick character or comfort? Which way do we go? And I'd like to tell you that I always pick character, but I don't at times. I pick comfort. But you know what you teach, Tony, which is the most vital thing you teach is how to do those uncomfortable things, but they're the right things to do. But when we do those uncomfortable things, eventually we're more comfortable because we've done the right thing. Your book is unbelievably great for people in healthcare because the number one issue in all the years I've done in healthcare is people struggle with difficult conversations, whether it's with a patient, a family member, a coworker, or their boss. Exactly. And that's something that difficult conversations is something that everyone has to do. It doesn't matter whether it's in your professional, your personal lives. As you know, I started off with teaching the difficult conversations to physicians on how to discuss tragic news. And then as time went by, went into the difficult conversations and how to communicate, build rapport and form relationships. And then right before I did the podcast, it was really the basis of the podcast was that whether you're in business or in medicine, it's really the same skill set. And I have to say, as we move into your book, your latest book, The Busy Leader's Handbook, I read that book and almost every paragraph of every sentence, you were speaking about how to be a good leader. I realized that this book, you could easily take the word leader, put in physician, and you could easily take out the word employee when you were talking about communication and put in the word patients or nurses, that really it's all about the relationships. And then you even say, and I'll quote you, leaders must be able to build strong relationships. They are the foundation for everything else. And that communication is the basis for that great communication from leaders, you say, sets people to do their best work helps them improve and grow and connects them. So that's the parallel, right? Do you think that's why you went from a business person who taught leadership to patient experience so smoothly because it's really the same thing? I think it's my background in special ed, which was the same thing. Because when you go, I keep going back to this, but again, as a special ed teacher, you assess the situation, you set lofty goals, but the other thing you have to do is build up trust. And you build up trust by recognizing what's right. And I think when I first got into healthcare, people thought I was a nut job because I was so complimentary. But you know, when you're teaching special ed, and I was in some schools with kids with lots of different special multiple needs, you learn how to recognize certain behaviors because you want that behavior to be repeated. Recognized behavior gets repeated. And sometimes you recognize people for doing things such as sitting when the class starts, putting stuff away. We had a girl that would get so excited about popsicles that she'd put one in her mouth without taking off the wrapper. (laughs) And the first day she took off the wrapper, you would have thought she'd won an Olympic gold medal. And so I think my training in that was very helpful because I tend to notice what's right. And I tend to start with what's right. Doesn't mean you don't have difficult conversations, but you still Build that emotional bank account to noticing what's right. So when you do have to take a withdrawal, you haven't bankrupt the relationship. And I think that's one of the great challenges in healthcare. We all get so busy, we don't make those deposits. And then the external environment starts making withdrawals on us. You know, I used to say to employees, you know, please, I'm not the one telling Medicare to not pay us this. I'm not the one to, there are certain things in the external environment drives that we've got to be able to manage. So I think that was really helpful to me. I think 
again, when you're a special ed teacher, you also have to be good at difficult conversations because you're sometimes telling parents that their child isn't going to be as independent as they would like their child to be. There's diagnosis that you wish you didn't have to provide to a, a family with that. And there's also some consequences. So one of the stories I always tell is I taught at the high school level for a while and we had, sadly, we had some kids that would be taken advantage of by other people in in the school system. Hmm. You might have a girl that you have to tell her not to get into the car with anybody she doesn't know, not to take a drink if she doesn't know what's in it, not to give money to people. These were all students. And, you know, you wish the society wasn't like that, but it was. So we had to be very good about consequences and accountability too. So I've just been really blessed. And, you know, I remember years ago, Tony, the hospital was at won a big award and a guy came up to me and he said a tongue in cheek. He said, how does a guy who was a special ed teacher end up running a hospital? <laughs> I said, well, as a special ed teacher, here's what you did. And he looked at me and said, my gosh, I wish I had a degree in special ed. It's really good preparation for what we do. Yeah. And you talk about the characteristics of a good leader. One of the things that you talk about really early on in the book is a good leader has humility. And I call that genuine in my book as a good physician is genuine and is a real person. And there's a lot of parallels between that. Again, wouldn't you agree? Well, I think the deal that anybody has to have is clarity and Mm self-awareness. So when I think of the word humility, I don't want to confuse it with false pride. So for example, if somebody comes up to you, Tony, and says, wow, that was a great presentation you did. Great workshop. I feel so much more comfortable now going out and having these difficult conversations. And you say, oh, it's nothing. I'm just lucky. Mm-hmm. And that's false pride. You're pushing away a skill set. Humility is being able to see one as they are. It's the clarity. And I think that's really vital because that means you see your strengths and you see what you're not good in. Periodically, because I'm in healthcare, you know, if you're in healthcare, people come to you just thinking you know more than you know. <laughs> somebody will come to me and they'll say, well, Quint, my doctor's referring me to this specialist out of town. And I said, well, you should thank them because obviously they feel that you can get treatment somewhere else beyond what they can offer you right now. I said, the most dangerous thing is somebody who doesn't know their own boundaries and their own limitations. So that's that humility of seeing ourself clearly. In my first chapter of my book, it's self-awareness. And mm-hmm. I think that is the key that opens the door to everything. So how aware am I? And sometimes I think the older we get, Tony, the more self-aware we get ourselves. But early on, we need people around us to give us feedback. I do that even today. I say, hey, don't let me go off grid. Don't be afraid to push me. One thing I tell executives to do all the time with their teams is throw out something they know is crazy and see (laughs) who on their team challenges them. Because you need people that are going to challenge you and you surround you with that. So, yeah, I think self-awareness, I'm being genuine, being authentic. People ask me, what's one of the big skills every leader has? I says, to be authentic, uh, to be themselves. Yeah, and it's really very important that you think of your boss as a real person who's not just your boss. It's also extremely important. I talk about it in my book that you think of your doctor as a real person. So I try to teach doctors, don't walk into the room and say, you know, what are you here for? Walk into the room, sit down and say, 
how are you? Or if you're really lucky, you can find some commonality with, oh, you're reading that book, or I didn't realize you're a Tampa Bay fan. And then all of a sudden you become a real person. And there's this whole concept that I talk about called, it's hard to fire your best friend, right? So if your boss is your best friend, or you feel that your boss is a trustworthy guy, who's a real person or a trustworthy girl, I think you're going to give them more slack. And that's what makes good leaders. Don't you agree? I think you're going to share more. I think the reason people struggle when their physician retires or leaves or they get referred to someone is that idea of being vulnerable. You know, you've had a great story. Rafael Bueno is a doctor in Boston who I have great respect for. He's a lung cancer specialist. And one of the people I admire greatly here got referred there for lung cancer. And by the time the fella got to see Dr. Bueno, Dr. Bueno had actually looked the guy up and knew something about him and talked to him and sort of took interest. And I think the issue always comes into the fact is, are you interested or interesting? And I think the beautiful factors bring to the table is if I'm being interested in you, you're going to be more sharing. You're going to be vulnerable. I mean, I've gone to mental health therapy on and off my whole life because I'm a big believer in brain health. And I I was going to a therapist named Martha Horton and I used to tease her because I'd say on the way to her, my appointment, I'd wait to the last possible minute, hoping she might cancel, you know, something (laughs) comes up. Then I'd sit and before I'd walk in, in case she wanted to cancel at the last minute, then I would sit here and say, here's what I'm not going to tell Dr. Horton today. She'd come meet me. By the time I'd walk to her office, I'd already thrown out what I wasn't going to talk to her about. <laughs> because she created that trust and that safe environment. And that's what doctors have such skill sets in doing. Because people have to feel safe that I can share some embarrassing moments with you. I got a phone call from a friend maybe three months ago. And he said, you know, I gotta tell you, I've had suicidal thoughts. And I was so pleased he felt safe enough to tell me those things. We can do something about it. So I I think it's that measure of feeling safe with yourself in a safe environment. And even what you teach, Tony, and I'm a big fan of yours. When you do a workshop, you've got to create the environment because you want people to practice it. You want people to demonstrate it. Well, I'm not going to do it if I don't feel I'm in a safe, safe environment. So, you know, one thing you do is you create that safe learning lab environment for people to practice something that they feel it's very difficult to do. Yeah. You really open yourself up when you have to really start to show people how you communicate because it's a skill. What I've been doing for 10 years with teaching the doctors individually, we've done probably seven, 8,000 doctors by now teaching them how to communicate bad news. I found that about 15% of the doctors that we train, no matter how young they are, knock it out of the park. They are just natural communicators, compassionate people. 15% of them, I have a real hard time. And sometimes I feel like I can't teach them. But the other 70% are genuinely compassionate, great people who just want to learn how to build that rapport, good, good communication. I suspect that in business, it's the same, that most people want to be good leaders and good communicators, but just need to be taught. I guess my question for you is back to business. And I'm trying to go back and forth relating business with healthcare and back and forth, the leader and the physician. My question is, do you think if you're hiring a new manager, a new leader, I know you've mentioned in your book how important communication is. Do you pick the guy who can communicate or the girl that can communicate? Or do you pick the smart person in the room and teach them how to communicate and be a leader? Can it be taught? It can be taught if the person wants to be taught. 
second chapter of my book, Busy Leader Handbook, is on once you're self-aware, are you coachable? Now, one of the challenges in healthcare, Tony, you and I both know, is how we shortchange training and development. Mm -hmm. We just shortchange people. And going back to what your research is, my research is about 34% of the leaders could probably learn this on their own. It's natural. They'll study it. But the rest of them need help. You don't want to create an environment that they're stoic people, healthcare people. So they don't want to raise their hand and say, well, I need help on this, maybe once in a while. I remember once again doing a training workshop years ago and a big healthcare system, 75 doctors to this workshop I was doing. Mm-hmm. And it was neat to see them over the day or two transform themselves from something that they thought they could do. You know, sometimes we don't know what we don't know. And mm-hmm. physicians truly are doing the best job they can do based on what they know. And physicians, it's a pretty challenging environment because I don't get to watch other people do it. Nobody says, let's double book physicians in the ER today so they can learn from each other. Let's watch this person. So one of my favorite stories in the emergency department, there was a healthcare system and they posted the patient satisfaction or patient experience scores by doctor. And this doctor noticed that he was sort of at the bottom. Hmm. Now, he didn't go to another doctor. He went to a nurse and said, what are these guys doing that I'm not doing? And she said, well, here's some things they do. So I think you've got to almost create that training and environment so it's not optional. It's sort of mandatory. And then when people get there, they get so much more out of it than they think. Yeah, I think 100%. When I give my workshops, you see a group of physicians or nurses or anybody that I'm training with their arms folded in the back and they're there because they were told they had to be here. But I tell you, there's nothing more rewarding, right? Than by the end of that workshop, that person is writing stuff down and is excited. And I mean, that's what gets me going. I love when that happens because they're like, oh, I like that. I'm good. And I tell them, I'm going to talk to you about different things and I'm going to show you some communication techniques and I want you to steal from me. That's why I call it steal from me. And But often, I think what we do is we concentrate on people who are doing poorly. And instead of concentrating on people who are doing poorly or just saying, gee, my satisfaction scores are low or my employees aren't listening, why don't you just sit back and watch that doctor who's having really good patient satisfaction scores? And even without me and without you, you'll probably say, she does something a little different here. She sits down and she talks about it. And I think that's one of the things I try to teach my kids now that they're all almost adults is watch the guy who's good. Well, you hit something, Tony, that's been researched now. The Heath brothers in their book, Switch, Change When Change is Hard, they say the same thing. They don't use medicine. They Mm -hmm. use other examples. So they say there's been study after study on the child who drops out of high school. But they find the child that doesn't drop out of high school that lives in poverty, that is moving around from foster home to foster home. And just try to figure out what is different in that child. So I'm a huge believer in what you said, and I fell into this by accident. So I'm at Holy Cross Hospital. Our patient satisfaction is crummy across the board, which was beautiful because then we could all blame the patient. (laughs) We're consistently crummy. And then all of a sudden, dang it, if one nursing unit doesn't pop way up. Now, we start sitting here with our smart intelligence executive brains. We say, those are the same patients that are in the other units, probably the same payer mix. 
the same shared rooms, the same community, the, you know, the same intercom they're hearing, the same wheels on the cart that's too noisy. Because these are all excuses we had for us not being good. Mm-hmm. So, so the challenge is, Tony, because people don't see other people do it. If you ask that person, what are you doing differently? They're going to say nothing. I'm just doing what everybody else is doing. And they think they are. So I released a fellow named Don Dean who worked for me and he was like head of our measurement team. He was in radiology. And I said, Don, Michelle doesn't think she's doing anything different, but something's got to be different because those patients are so much feeling better about the care than any place else. Go up there. And I want you to just observe her for the next five days. And I know you'll probably be a pain to her. She'll say nothing, but just watch everything she does. So about the third day, he said, Michelle, I noticed that one of the first things you do in the morning is you go visit every single patient on the unit. And she said, isn't everybody doing that? And we said, no, nobody's doing that. Well, pretty soon everyone was doing it. Now we got better at it. You know, you find recognition, you come out reward. But I absolutely 100% agree with you. Had an ER in Texas that put a camera up. They were really clear about not doing the patient, but they then took all the physicians and they basically, and I think you'll really, this is what you're talking about. And then they created sort of a, like you would an athletic, you've analyzed the video. And what they did is they studied the doctors that had the best patient experience. That's what they did. Then they took the physician in that didn't have as good, and they showed the physician their video, and then they showed the video of the doctor with best patient experience. Within a matter of months, everybody had great patient experience. Because once they could just see, ah, they sit, I don't. They offer a blanket, I don't. They talk about, I want to do everything I can to reduce your pain. They narrate the care better than me. Doctors are smart people. Mm-hmm. Once they saw it done right, and they were doing it the best they could. But remember, physicians and all healthcare people have a disadvantage because they don't get to see the other people, the best practices where, you know, again, I own a minor league baseball team. The players watch the other people bat. They watch mm-hmm. the other people's pitch. They're constantly observing what their peers are doing. In healthcare, the last time you got to see a peer doing anything was your residency. Yeah, that's a great point. So, yeah. And so watch. Here's some of the take-home messages. I have two quick more questions for you. Take-home messages, be positive, reward. You mentioned before about one-to-one positive and negatives, but it actually should be three to five. In the previous yes. episode that I did, really had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Helen Reese who's one of the big names for empathy. And, and she brings that up also that when you're bringing up children, that's the same ratio, three to one, five to one positives to negatives. In the workplace, you at least got to get three. And outside of the workplace at home, you got to hit five. Now, I'm sure you can hit five everywhere. I always tease people in healthcare. We're sometimes so unused to hearing what's right. We even get nervous when we hear what's right. You know, what's happening? I tell people, when you start being more positive, you better tell people why you're doing it. They're going to think somebody changed your medication and they're going to be a little bit nervous about it. And the other thing that was really cool that you mentioned, too, is that it is amazing, no matter how old you are, how much you like positive feedback. When I do my program from the book, it's all in the delivery. When we go and we do the workshops, we do communication training, 
for everyone, the doctors, the nurses, the final phase of that program is called see something, say something. Mm-hmm. And we have little stickers, tiny little stickers that go on your chest and little stickers that go on your badge holder. And we say to everyone who takes the class, the workshop, that if you see something good, anytime you see a good interaction, doesn't matter if you're the housekeeper who sees an interaction with the director of medicine or the director of medicine that sees a good interaction with the housekeeper, give them a sticker. Mm-hmm. And at first people said to me, you know, directors, chief medical officers, directors of the NICU, directors of the programs, get these stickers. They get this big smile on their face. They put it on their lab coat. And some of them even put it on their doors outside their office. And they're 60-year-old men or 60-year-old women. So everybody needs a little positive feedback. I think, too, in healthcare, at times we sort of joke about these things. We almost make fun of them at first. And then you see the impact. There's two little stories that I just love. We had this thing at the hospital. I was at Baptist where you could give a wow card. So when somebody does something good, you write out and you give them a wow card. And it was cute. It was nice. You know, it was wonderful. But I underestimated the impact of these wow cards. So I'm going up to see Dr. Troy Tippett, who's a neurosurgeon, and he's a really spectacular physician. And, you know, I go out in and here he's got a wow card that somebody gave him. A nursing assistant had written him a wow card, handed it to him, and he had it next to his diploma from medical school, this wild card. And it hit me how much of impact that had. The other story is sometimes even when it's not sincere at first, it has an impact. And we joke that even insincere recognition works in healthcare at times. So my story was, is this, again, working in a hospital, there was a nurse and she was very frustrated because she'd always wanted her own children. And adoption is wonderful, but she always wanted her own children and she could not conceive. And she was in a busy ER in an inner city hospital and people were coming in either pregnant or maybe not taking care of themselves in prenatal care, maybe very young, pregnant, maybe sometimes young with two or three kids. So she would get very judgmental. And Hmm. this nurse manager got complaints about her treatment. And it wasn't just them. It was, she treated people differently depending on different characteristics. And she was very judgmental. So the nurse manager brought her in and told her she'd have to be nice to everyone. And she said, I know that's hard on you. I don't care. You know, she sort of made a joke. She said, I'll give you these smiley thick teeth of plastic you can put in your mouth to look like you're happy. She said, I don't care if you're sincere or not sincere. You have got to treat people better no matter what. So that next day, she came in and almost went overboard. Well, hello, how are you? Well, let me get you this. Let me do this for you. And then she would say, what's well, the patients? It's not me, it's the patients. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, the nurse manager called her in and said, well, how did the day go? You know, treating everybody nice. She said, well, today didn't count because everybody was nice to me. <laughs> So all of a sudden it clicked on her and the message is you sort of get what you reap. And I think the fact that you talk about reward recognition, at first these wow cards were sort of a joke. Oh, wow. Oh, here's something. Whoa. Wow. You're doing a good job. But then all of a sudden it clicked up when I was again, president of Baptist, people got little light bulbs that they made us better. So they got all these little light bulbs for Mm -hmm. bright ideas. 
They'd look like military people with all these little light bulbs. So USA Today came to do a story on us. So while they were walking around the hallways, they saw some of the staff with these light bulbs. And they just said, tell me what that's for. Do you know the staff member could go by every single light bulb and tell why they have that light bulb? And I think sometimes maybe we're not comfortable with recognition because in healthcare, you know, we're not used to, to getting it. And one of the things I used to always talk about in healthcare, sometimes, Tony, it's even hard to compliment somebody. You tell somebody they do a good job, they start arguing with you. I could do better. I could do better. <laughs> and I shared again one of my therapy stories. I went to Catholic Social Services years ago. Amy Storm was my therapist. And she said, Quinn, I got to give you some feedback. I went there because I was depressed. And she said, you know, when I give you a some positive feedback, you reject it, you deflect it, you tell me why it's not true. And she said, I think one of the reasons you feel bad about yourself is you filter out the positive. One of my messages for years in healthcare is learn how to say thank you, learn how to look what's right. Because I think in healthcare, Tony, we filter out the positives. Mm -hmm. You take the patient home that it didn't work. You take the employee home you weren't effective with. And you miss all the positive things that have been done. And so, you know, we're a big believer that you start off meetings with wins. You end the day with what are you here to be grateful for? Because I think healthcare or any leadership is a great position. But I just think we just get wore down because we play defense instead of offense because we find out what's wrong instead of focusing on what's right. And you're one of those right people in healthcare. I mean, you, you're taking one of the most difficult topics in healthcare. I mean, it's easy to teach rounding. It's easy to mm -hmm. teach keywords at key times. It's easy to talk about making a phone call. It doesn't mean it's simple, but it's easier than what you teach. You teach the most difficult thing in healthcare. My first grandchild was stillborn birth. Oh, I'm sorry. My daughter-in-law was full term. Maybe a week before she was due, her placenta released. And she didn't know at the time that was going to be an issue. They went to the hospital. She delivered a baby. They named her Ella and she was, you know, stillborn. Mm -hmm. Now, when she got to the ER, she sort of had that feeling something was wrong because of the blood, but she still held out hope that her baby was alive. Yeah. And somebody had to sit down with her and my son-in-law and tell them that. In my book, Hardwiring Excellence, of course, the book story at the end is Brian's story. It's about my nephew who was killed at 19 in a car wreck. And somebody had to tell my sister-in-law and brother-in-law that your, you know, your son is dead. I'm so sorry. But what, I, what amazes me is how people have the skill set to do it in a way. So four years later, I go to speak at that hospital that Brian died on. And I call his parents to tell him I'm going to speak at Christ Hospital in Chicago. And immediately, my sister-in-law, Kathy, said, tell him thank you. They were so kind to us. So what you teach, Tony, is how to do the most difficult thing in healthcare, and that's break bad news and have difficult conversations. So I want to thank you for the impact that you make in thousands and thousands of lives. Well, thank you. And it's something that is so important. I don't think most people know how important it is. How you break bad news can affect somebody for up to 30 years if you don't do it correctly. There's not a person in the world, a doctor, a nurse, a police officer, a first responder who wants to be bad at it, but we're just never taught on how to do that. And when things don't go well, we tend to get upset. But I got to tell you what brings me really makes me feel good is when 
and now it's been 14 years, but I get letters and Christmas cards from mothers and fathers who've lost their baby that was in my care, a premature baby who died for a variety of reasons. And, and I get a Christmas card from them 14 years later. And if that doesn't make you proud and be happy that you went into medicine, then I don't know what will, because many people would see that as I failed. But in the end, I was there for the family and they appreciated it. And it's something I think we just need to teach more. And I'm trying, Quint. I mean, I'm trying to train every doctor out there on how to do that and build relationships. And we're doing it one at a time. Sometimes we do it in big groups, but I feel that is even more important than what I'm doing as a physician, but it's at least equally important. And I thank you for your compliments. That's really very nice of you to say. I think also we have to look at physicians. And if you ask most physicians what they majored in, it wasn't sociology or psychology, mm-hmm. but behavioral medicine per se. It was usually science, biology, chemistry. If you take the Myers-Briggs and you give most physicians, about 90% of them are going to be an I which means they like to think internally before externally. And that means some things are not going to be as natural to them. And I think that's why you've got to make it safe for them to be vulnerable, safe for them to say they don't know, because they're sort of programmed to know. Because they've picked the major that they're really good in, they've always been very successful. So I was talking to a person, a Harvard Medical School student, science major, and the whole bit or biology or chemistry. And I said, isn't it amazing that most of your training is going to be scientific, yet your job's going to be all about relationships? I love that. A hundred percent. You're exactly right. <laughs> yeah. And so I think the fact that you create a safe environment for clinicians or everyone on how to have these conversations, how to say they're tough. And I know we're going way long, but you know, I love doctors and I think doctors knew I liked them. And I think that makes a big difference. You can't fake it because they're diagnosticians. And one of the biggest impact I had from a physician was my first weekend administrator on call. You know, that's when in the old days you got a beeper and you, you wrote <laughs> the to the administrator on call. So it was a Saturday morning and the administrator on call, you had to walk around the hospital. And my big skill was learning to say to the house supervisor, what do you think we should do? And then <laughs> tell you. So I had heard that a person I sort of knew, not well, but knew of, she's mid-40s. Her husband had a severe stroke, a couple teenage children. I knew she was in the hospital, and I turn the corner, and there she is with her kids and Dr. Ram Rao, who's an internal medicine physician. And he's sitting there with the family going over the decisions that they have to make. And the decision was... When you look at it, do we keep him alive per se artificially or Mm -hmm. let him die naturally? And I watched him walk through the family with this. And they made the decision to let sort of nature take its course. There wasn't any real other option, but you know, there is always another option with Mm -hmm. tubes, with all sorts of things. And and then he said to them, Now I'm available. Here's my number, here's my beeper. This was beeper days. If you change your mind or need to talk about it, I want you to call me. Now, I think he knew they probably wouldn't call him, but the sense of understanding and comfort was really quite remarkable. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I've never 
have to tell somebody that. I've never, you know, Dr. Steve Beeson, a good friend of mine, tells about the fact when he's telling a, a patient, a woman, and her husband that she's got terminal cancer and she's the same age as his wife and the kids are the same age. I think physicians have to do some of the most difficult things of anybody. And what do physicians really want? You know, treat me with respect. Have things mm-hmm. go in time. They don't have a lot of demand. So I've always been a, a big fan of physicians. And that's why I think in this environment, providing them the support with training, because they're not going to ask for it. I don't think if the chief medical officer says, hey, raise your hand if you want some additional training on how to be more effective talking to your patients, nobody's going to raise their hand. Once you provide the training and the education, they're so grateful for it. So I think what you do is just a difference maker in healthcare, and I'm very honored you've asked me to be on your podcast. Well, thank you, Quint. And what you have done for patient experience really cannot be underestimated. You really made patient experience what it is today. We have a long way to go. There's still, and I don't have time for the question, but we we do know that most hospital executives place patient experience in their top three priorities. And yet many of them have not yet invested in patient experience. But thanks to you, it is now put on the map. In 1999, it wasn't even in the top 10, nor was employee oh. engagement. I think too, and when you tie it into clinical outcomes, which I try to do all the time, that's where then it all of a sudden it clicks, just like employee right. engagement. And you know, when the research came out and said there's a correlation between employee turnover and your mortality rate. So it's no longer we're lowering turnover to low longer turnover. We're lowering turnover to save lives. So it's really exciting for me to see there's an association like the Barrel Institute that didn't even exist. There's a jobs called patient experience, chief patient experience officer that didn't exist. CEOs even have it in their incentive comp. That's when you know it's real, when it's yes. not incentive <laughs> comp. So we have a long way to go, but man, have we come a long way also. And a lot of that has to do with you. You mentioned the Barrel Institute, Jason Wolf. I interviewed just a couple of weeks ago. His interview will probably drop early December, maybe right before yours. So Quint, this has been amazing. I said in the beginning of this introduction that we could probably do 10 of these. And I think the audience now believes me because you have so much to offer. What you've done for healthcare, what you've done for leadership and business is just amazing. When you agreed to come on this podcast, I was just elated. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you for spending your time. I'm going to put all the references in our show notes, but what's the best way for someone to get in touch with you? And I'll put that in the show note too, for those of you who are driving. Sure. It's my email is Quint, Q-U-I-N-T at Quint Studer, S-T-U-D-E-R.com. I, one time somebody sent me a note and I responded right away. And the person's husband said, that's not him. He has something that does that for him. So then she wrote me another one and I confirmed it really was me. So, you know, I pray every morning just to be useful to people. So when people reach out and allow me to be useful, I feel I'm blessed. A good friend of mine, I went to thank him one day and he said, the one thing you and I will never agree on is who should be thanking who. So Tony, thank you. And anybody who reaches out, I'd be very, I'm grateful to do whatever I can do to help them. And I guarantee I'll end up getting more from them than I'll ever give them. Thank you, Quint. This has been amazing. If you like this podcast, please go ahead and hit subscribe and download all the previous episodes that we referred to during this podcast. If you want to know more about the Orsini way, 
or about the book, you can go to theorsiniway.com. Thank you again. And thank you again, Quint. And I can't thank you enough. It's been great. Grateful. All right. Take care. Well, before we leave, I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. And I want to thank the Finley Project for being such an amazing organization. Please, everyone who's listening to this episode, go ahead, visit thefinleyproject.org, see the amazing things they're doing. I've seen this organization literally save the lives of mothers who lost infants. So to find out more, go to thefinleyproject.org. Thank you, and I will see you again on Tuesday. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review. To contact Dr. Orsini and his team or to suggest guests for future podcasts, visit us at theorsiniway.com.